Hi friends, welcome to tonight's event, What is the Bible? Honest Answers to Frequently Asked Questions. I'm Hannah Carden. I'm the teaching pastor here at Urban Village Church. If you talk about me, you can use the pronouns she and her. And I'm so, so glad to welcome you to this space. A couple of ways to orient you around this. Um, one is that we can share comments from Facebook or YouTube on the screen. So if you wanna ask a question about the Bible, about life, about the church, about anything, you can ask it in the comment sections or you can ask anonymously at onlinequestions.org. If you go to that website on any device that you've got, whichever screen is in front of you, and put in the event number 31255, you can submit questions, you can vote on other questions you see. And we, um, led by our fearless and wonderful director and organizer, Caleb, are going to be answering the, as many of them as we can. What you're here for tonight is a little bit of an experiment and a mixture of ways of investigating this really important part of our faith life together, which is the Bible. I'm going to start by doing a true 101, a couple of facts about how the Bible came together. Then we're going to invite on our panelists, Gloria and Leisha, and we're going to address some of the questions that have been submitted in the last week about what the Bible is and how we relate to it in faith. And we're gonna be taking open questions. So the whole time, if you put up a question, we wanna answer it and we wanna be dialoguing with you. So please put in the comments anything you have found really helpful, any resources you've loved, any thoughts you've had, and this can be a really beautiful community conversation. One thing to note is that we will be keeping this recording on both of our pages indefinitely. Um, so if you don't want your name used, if you don't want your comments shared, uh, you have to let us know about that <laughs> um, and, and then we'll do something about it. Okay, let's get started. What is the Bible? Well, first of all, it's a lot of things. None of us tonight are biblical scholars who know everything, A, because there's no such thing as a biblical scholar who knows everything, <laughs> and B, because that's not most of the people who are people of faith. So you will tonight and should hear disagreement and hear people who are moving and changing. We all have believed different things in the past than we believe now. We might believe different things in the future than we believe now. What a gift from God. But one thing that I pretty consistently believe is that the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library. The Bible is so, so many books put together to create the text with which most of us are familiar and have tried to lead our lives of faith. That means that the different books of the Bible, the different parts of it, were written by different people in different times, and each has a unique history and context that can be really, really helpful for understanding it. One frequently asked question I get about the Bible um, is, why do I not understand it? <laughs> why are there parts of it that just don't make any sense to me, that don't feel simple? What are these long lists of names? And one of the things I always think about is something that I learned in my first Hebrew Bible class, which is um, the tools that we're missing to understand some parts of the Bible on their own. I wanna share with you a book you've probably read that I've read to my kids a thousand times, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. And I wanna show you this picture from If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. The first time I read this book to my son, he asked me a question, which was, why are there two mices? Why are there two mices? Because he saw one over here and one over here. And he said, how can there be two mices at the same time? 
And I explained to him something that I took for granted, right? Which is when there are two pictures in a picture book, they're usually depicting different moments in time. There aren't two mices, there's one mice doing two different things. But he didn't know because he hadn't read a thousand books like I have, and he hadn't been taught all of the signals that were constantly being taught by our books, our television, our movies about how to interpret the media of our time. Little things that help us to understand basic stuff, like are those two pictures of two different mice or one picture of one mouse? Um, we don't really often come to reckon with how much of that is built in and how much of that is not obvious until we come to a text like the Bible, um, because you probably don't understand most of those cues for Aramaic or Hebrew literature that was written literally thousands of years ago. So when there's stuff that you don't understand, it's not necessarily that there's something wrong with the Bible or that there's something wrong with you. It's that you need tools to figure out what those cues are, to figure out what those rules are, to figure out how you can read media that's from a different time, but still God-inspired, God-related, God-breathed in a way that is meaningful. We just showed you, right, that the Bible is a library, not a book. It's a ton of different books, and those books are talking to each other. Here's one of my favorite visualizations in the history of the world. This is every single intertextual reference in the Bible. Um, and we'll link to this in the comments. This is every single time that one book of the Bible talks about another book. The Bible is constantly interpreting itself. Jesus was famous for this, right? That he would say, you have heard it said in this part of the scriptures, or I believe from this part of the scriptures. And the fact that we see people in the Bible attempting to interpret it, attempting to understand it, I think says to us that that's a great thing for us to do too. That there's not just one simple way this thing can be lived out. It's been a conversation the whole time. And that applies in particular to how the Bible came together. This was one of the big questions we've gotten is like, how did the Bible get put together? Um, and that's a multifaceted question, but the answer is by people, right? So a lot of parts of the Bible either started out as um, oral communication, stories that people told each other directly in groups or one-on-one -on -one that became so important to the life of faith, so important to our understanding of who we were as a people or of what God was doing in the world that we had to write them down. Or they were written down for a specific purpose, a poem or a song for reading and singing in worship, or a letter to a church because you actually really were worried about what they were doing. And then people found those songs or they found those letters and they meant so much to them. They learned so much from them that they started saying, let's read this song in worship or let's read this letter to one another in devotional time in Bible study in somebody's house. And the canonization process, which is the word for the Bible coming together, happened when religious leaders from all over and they did it in slightly different ways at different times took these texts that had become massively popular and decided based on a couple of criteria, do we know where this came from, right? How does it relate to our history that we know of where our people came from and how they've been interacting with God? Do people find it useful? Does it grow their faith? Um, is it something that a lot of people use in a lot of different places or is it just something that people like in this one city? 
And do we sense the doctrine of God in it? Does it seem to say things that are true about who God is and what a community is? And the Hebrew Bible, which I'm going to be using tonight the phrase Hebrew Bible to refer to the texts of the Bible um, that Jewish communities receive as their Bible, because I think Old Testament um, creates a it, it acts as if the Hebrew Bible only matters to Christians and only matters in the past, which is untrue. The Hebrew Bible was brought together by rabbis over the course of a 400 year period um, from for in our history, about 200 years before Jesus was born to about 200 years after Jesus was born. And then the Christian Bible was started to get written um, about 100 years after Jesus was born and kind of came to its final form about four to 500 years after Jesus was born. And there are still multiple final forms. Depending on which denomination of Christianity you ask, that library is a library of anywhere from 66 to 80 books. And we still disagree about some of what belongs in there. Um, but what we do agree on is that this thing matters to us. We all read it in worship, we all read it in our lives, but it means something different to each one of us. And to figure out that part, what your questions are, what you wanna do with this thing, or other questions you have about what it is and how it's come together, I'm now gonna invite on our panelists. So come on board, Lija and Gloria, and you'll get to hear a little bit about who these wonderful people are. Gloria, can you please tell the gathered community what brings you here tonight and how they know you? Sure. So hi, everybody. I'm Gloria Feliciano Feltman. And when you refer about me or talk about me, you can use she, her pronouns. I have been a member of Urban Village Church since August of 2010 was when I started attending. So it'll be 11 years this summer, which is crazy to think about. Um, and I was invited because I have gone to seminary. I graduated with my MDiv in 2019, and I also graduated with a Master's of Social Work in 2019. And I'm currently in the ordination process in the United Methodist Church um, for the path of deacon. So I, my full-time job outside uh, of church stuff is working as a therapist. And then I kind of plan to work within the church to advocate for mental health work, justice work, all that kind of fun stuff. And I just love like theological, biblical conversations like this. So I'm really excited to be here. And I'll say another is that Gloria has taught our disciple small group, which is one of our sort of intensive Bible small groups that people have really loved and gotten to know the Bible through. So I'm really interested to hear um, a little bit of what has come up in that group and what you've learned through it, which will be yeah, awesome. Yeah, for sure. And Lija, who are you? What brings you here tonight? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Lija. Uh, you, my pronouns are he and him. Um, I am one of the student pastors serving at Urban Village this year. So I'm in the middle of getting my MDiv um, in the second year of my program. Um, and I've also gone through a lot of the same questions and learning experiences, um, learning a lot of new things in my classes and in my program that I had not known about the Bible before and had to figure out how to reconcile and figure out, yeah, how this, this text relates to me and how, how to make some sense of it. So I'm also always up for a theological and philosophical conversation, so I'm also super excited to be here. Well, welcome. 
Folks, if you have any questions, bring those up at onlinequestions.org. <laughs> Somebody correct me if I got that wrong, or drop them in the comments on Facebook or YouTube. But we're gonna answer some of the ones that people have submitted before. And so I'd like to start actually with a personal question because I think figuring out our personal relationship to the Bible is nice context for some of these bigger questions. What is your favorite part of the Bible? And what part of the Bible is hardest for you? Like the one that you've had to wrestle with the most or has made you maddest or like it just makes you uncomfortable for some reason. Best and worst of the Bible. Where's your personal relationship with the Bible at? Do you want to go first, Gloria? Sure. I'm happy to go first. Voluntold. Um, let's see. Okay. So I will tell you my favorite books, my favorite book of Hebrew scripture, and then my favorite book of, um, New, New Testament scripture. Um, my favorite Hebrew scripture is Exodus. I am, I'm a big fan of Moses in particular. And I am, I think for me, it was really because of he's such a flawed character and to think that God can call someone who's so flawed, who's a, who's a murderer, who can't speak like that um, is really inspiring to me. But then also just because of the theme of covenant within Exodus and how that carries out, not just in Hebrew scripture, but in Christian scripture as well. Um, and how imperative that is to, I think, our understanding of um, who God is and how God relates to us as humans um, is really important. And then this one is going to be a, a little controversial or maybe surprising. I really personally love the book of Revelation. Mm. I took a class on it in seminary, and I think in part because um, – of the focus of end times, right? The theology of end times, also known as eschatology, is a really big word for it, um, can sound really scary, but in the way I understand it, right? The reality of it is this renewal, this coming back to creation to, for its intended purposes, for what God created humans for and the world for, that's how I really understand Revelation and that it's this really revolutionary text that was calling the people that it was written for at the time and us to continue to fight to create God's kingdom here on earth. And, um, and in my disciple group, we just finished reading about 70% of the Bible. We go from Genesis to Revelation and it was, Revelation was hard for our group and it was really helpful for them to kind of hear this other perspective that we don't get a lot in our society. So I always love to talk about it. I love to give book recommendations for folks on what to read if you want to know more about it. Um, but it's definitely not one that people choose a lot, I think. One of the the interesting things for me about this last year has been the way in which it has changed my relationship to parts of the Bible that I always sort of took as historical and fine and they were there. But now I'm like, I'm living through a plague and I'm living through national trauma and it has made 
Um, it just has made parts of the Bible that are about that stuff feel way more personal and meaningful and like certain forms of desperation. And so I agree with you, Gloria. It's, I think Revelation has a lot to say about the kind of day we're in. Why are we in such a time when people are imagining the end of the world and fearing it all of the time? Because they were living under because we're living under conditions of oppression and empire that mirror the conditions of oppression and empire that the early Christians who created the revelation world lived under, right? There's that, there's that commonality. So yeah, over time, things might change. Anything you struggle with or love, Lija? Anything I struggle with? I feel like I was, <laughs> I feel like I want to name a book from each of the sections of the Bible because it's very hard <laughs> to like compare across them. <laughs> Um, I saw a comment in the chat that uh, uh, the best is Philippians. I also really like the epistle of Philippians, although it has also been something that I've struggled with a lot. Um, you know, <clears throat> what is, uh, I think Paul reflects a lot on like, what does the cross mean for us there? What is like Jesus's approach to life and death mean for our conception of power? I think it even has like a very, a lot of conversational parts with maybe some more postmodern ideas of what power in life looks like, what agency looks like. Um, so that has definitely been something that's been in my mind a lot. Um, I also want to say I really like some of the, like the wisdom books as well. I find, I think like a lot of people, uh, easier parts of the Hebrew Bible to digest sometimes. Um, the Psalms, certain one of some, some, certain ones of them, especially in the ways that psalms have been like set to music. Um, I've sang in choir pretty much all my life and there have been a lot of like marvelous settings of psalms that have really been very emotional and resonant. Um, but also just like Ecclesiastes and like the kind of like <laughs> cynicism and philosophy, like stoic philosophical, you know, position that that is, it's often like a fun reminder for in in classes when we're struggling to like come up with something clever to write in a paper and realizing like well, there's not that much clever there's nothing new <laughs> you just, so it's a nice it's a nice thing to fall back to sometimes so lovely I will say I'm someone who grew up non-religious and I converted to Christianity in my late teens um so I I have really loved and been intrigued by the Bible from day one, um, which I often find in talking with other folks about the Bible is because I didn't come with any preconceived notions. The Bible was never used against me and I was never told that I had to live a certain way because of the Bible. And so all of it strikes me as just like super fascinating and amazing and awesome and I wanna live in it all the time. Um, but the last couple of years I have begun to have that tense relationship with the Bible that I that people I've met have had um, with the book of Timothy. Um, because basically whenever I'm having a, a conversation with someone where we disagree about who God is and what God wants from us, um, I will frequently get thrown in my face this like, women shouldn't talk, should women even be pastors? <laughs> and like, I know that's not what the book is saying. I know that's not God's intention for the world, the first women, you know, but it, um, it does begin to make you irritated. It begins to make you really frustrated. And it's not actually about what the text is. It's about how people use it, but then it impacts my relationship with the Bible. And so I've really um, come to like, feel really sympathetic and empathetic for that these last couple of years. Um, one thing I want to dive into the biggest question we got over and over and over again. Um, the specific one specific version we got that I'm going to address first is, 
is the creation story allegory or real? <laughs> is the creation story allegory or real? And I'm gonna call that a subversion of the larger question, is the only way to read the Bible literally? Or are there other ways I can read it? And what would literally even mean? So let's like, like let's start big. Let's start with the big question. Um, and, I, and I will just say something that's been really meaningful to me about this specific question of is the creation story allegory or real um, is whenever you have received something about a part of the Bible, go and read it for yourself. Because if you go ahead and you read Genesis, here are a couple of things that you'll notice. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 don't agree with each other. <laughs> if they are both meant to be taken as literal step-by-step -step histories of what specifically happened in physical reality at a moment in time, they already contradict each other, right? And what that tells me is not that something's gone horribly wrong and nothing is true or real. What that tells me is that that's not what the, the God was trying to say in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that I am looking for something different than what God is trying to tell me through those texts. If all I'm looking for is um, comport with a physical evocation of what happened after the Big Bang or whatever, right? Like that's just not what the Bible's trying to do. And why am I asking it to try and do something that is not what it's trying to do? Um, what I will say is that I often call myself a Genesis 1 Christian. Genesis 1 feels truer to me than almost anything else I've ever encountered in the world. That God is the base of all that is. That the primary foe of God is not evil but chaos and the disorder that reigns in our lives and in our bodies and in a world that comes apart. That all things are a part of God's good creation and that God looked at us and called us good. So is it true? It's the truest thing I've ever known. Is it of God? It's taught me more about God than anything else. Does it mean that I can't believe in the Big Bang? No, it just doesn't, <laughs> right? Like there are all of these sources for how we interpret our faith. One is the Bible, this collection of things that God has done through community. One is our reason, the brains and the brains of others that God has given us as a gift. One is tradition, human history, and the works of the ancestors that are still meaningful to us today. And one is experience of the Holy Spirit that is still talking and moving. And when I take all of those into account, I think the question, is it allegory or is it real, isn't even the question to ask because the Bible is doing something totally different. So that's where I come down on it. And I want to offer that to you as one way to come down. But how about you, Gloria and Leisha? Like this question of what is the Bible supposed to be? Is it an advice column? Is it a like literally like God sat down and wrote these tens of thousands of words at one time? Is it we're supposed to do whatever we say? Is it we can throw out whatever we want? What is the Bible? What's its deal? I was going to jump in and even ask you to clarify what you mean by real because <laughs> right. um, I think allegories are real um, but yeah I think I, maybe more accurate or I my the pedat the pedat <laughs> the pedantic like tendency in me is to say like is it is it a uh, is it allegory or historical or like historical truth in the sense of like facts or science right um, yeah I think something that I found really helpful in thinking about that is that like 
given that the Bible is a library, um, each of those books in the library is written in a very different way, and it, they are in are, uh, different genres. And I think that's a really that was a really helpful category to start thinking about. Um, just as you would not read uh, a book of nonfiction the same way as a book of fiction, just as you wouldn't read prose the same way as a poem, um, you can't read different books of the Bible assuming that they're all part of the same genre because they are different books and they've been written by different people in different times. And so, yeah, it's I would say it's definitely real, but it's probably also something like allegory, something like uh, epic or myth. It's like it's hard to ascribe a word to it. Um, I know in my Hebrew Bible class, we also read alongside of Genesis 1 and 3, like other creation narratives from the ancient Mesopotamian world, right? And you can even see some, there are analogs, there are floods in these other ones as well. There are um, parallelisms with like the number of days and other, uh, just other features that are very, you know, reminiscent. Um, and so there's, the, there's a genre of like Mesopotamian creation story, but, like what does it mean to read one of those, right? And so that's, I think what biblical scholarship, you know, is trying to do is to figure out or an important first step in figuring out how do you read this part of the Bible is figuring out what kind of text is this? You know, um, the Psalms are maybe more more like poems, more like music, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think going off of the the library theme, right? I really agree with what both of you said. And um, one of the things I can remember Christian Kuhn saying in a, a sermon once was like, uh, there's so much information, right, that can contradict itself within the Bible. And so how do you know what is true, right? And you really have to ask yourself some questions, right? It's kind of like, do I understand God to be this way? Does it agree with that? Does it agree? Does, and if we're going to argue or think, like I think, that the overarching narrative of the Bible is about God's grace, God's love for us. If it doesn't fit in that, then it it doesn't feel um, true. And the thing that I try to remember, right, is that the Bible was written by humans and we all make mistakes. We all kind of have our own agenda at times. So sometimes you'll read something and it'll be like, this doesn't fit with who I understand God to be, but why is it in the Bible? And the question that I think the answer to that question is, is because somebody wrote it who, who was kind of dealing with this at that point in time. And it doesn't necessarily fit for me right now in this day and age. And then questions that I like to ask that like the disciple curriculum, the Bible study um, offers to people is to, as you're reading the Bible to ask, what does this say about God? What does this say about humans? And what does this say about the relationship between God and humans? Mm -hmm. And that is kind of what I always circle back to when I'm really struggling with something to help me kind of sort through what's going on at the time. And so I think that that's where I land on, is it true? If it fits with my understanding of who God is, which honestly is very similar to what you were saying, Hannah, Genesis 1, 
God created us, we are good, then it works for me. And if it's not true, then what is it saying about humans? And what is it saying about our relationship with God and our relationship with each other? Those are such great questions, Gloria. Thank you for sharing those. Because I, part of where the human element of the Bible comes in for me um, is that I believe in the incarnation, right? Like for me in my Christian faith, the most profound and extraordinary thing that God ever did was come to the world to share in human life and to share in human experience and to share with us in all of the ways that that goes wrong and gets messed up. <laughs> like this is a part of the God that I know that God takes on human flesh. And so for me, the human parts of the Bible that I really struggle with, um, I do struggle with them. I, I feel called to account by the Bible, right? The Bible is different for me than anything else. I feel like I have to I have to wrestle with it. It's a part of how God is talking to me and keeping me accountable to the ancestors and keeping me accountable to God's self. And the human parts are part of what I'm supposed to learn from it <laughs> because almost any messed up human thing in the Bible is something in which I share and can be implicated. It's a way in which I also mess up. It's an assumption about God that's not true that I also make. So even the parts of the Bible that I end up not taking as direction I still think are helpful for faith formation. So this gets to a little bit of what you said, Leisha, about genre. One of the most exciting activities I ever do in our Bible 101 small group that we do, if anybody ever wants to join this, is um, there's so many genres in the Bible and they're all beautiful, right? But a couple of the big ones, poems are a genre, right? Poems and songs, art. Another genre is gospels, which is another way to say like biography of an important person, right? Gospel is just a way to say like telling the life of someone who really mattered, in this case, Jesus. Or letters, right? Letters to a church about what you love about them and one of the things that they're doing wrong. And one of the things we do in our Bible 101 class is each person creates an element of that genre. So you can either write a poem about what you love about God you can write a biography of somebody who changed your faith, or you can write a letter to a church you love about what they've done that was messed up to you and what they've done that was awesome. And I think when we do that, you all of a sudden are like, oh, right. Like Galatians 1 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it's Paul being like, I love you guys and you're terrible, which is often how we feel about each other at church, right? Like, I don't think that's direction about how to live my life, but it certainly teaches me something about faith. Um, so genre is important. Lenses are important. This was a great question we got that I wanted us to address. And then we're just going to go into open conversation time. So people, please start dropping your questions in the comments, start dropping them at onlinequestions.org. And this was, where should I start? with reading the Bible. What should I read first? What order should I read it? What tools should I read it with? So if you're talking to someone and they're gonna just start reading the Bible, how would you answer that question for them? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna be giving so many diplomatic answers, but I think it, it does depend a little on what you're looking for, where you're coming from, if this is your first time reading it ever, um, I might say that the like important touch points might be to read like the first couple of chapters of Genesis, just to like have the you know the very beginning, the big like the big picture. But I would also definitely encourage 
folks to start with one of the gospels just pick up one of the stories of jesus like if if i had if you know if it's not to reduce christianity to just the gospels but you know i think christianity it takes its name from christ and we are all followers after jesus and i think you know you can't go wrong starting there just with the story of jesus and his life and like what did he really do and what did he you know how did he treat people how did he live how was he how was god on this earth like you said Kenna, like how what did the incarnate god look like right and that's that hopefully will be a good starting point for wanting to know more about how god has been in relation to humanity for the rest of the time yeah, that's that's the advice I got when I first became a Christian was like, read the Gospels first. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get. I also think because they're written in a format that is most familiar yeah. to us, like all of us have read a story about a guy's life and all the things that happened in it from birth to death. Right. So it's it's less um, foreign in some ways. You have to have fewer tools to just get what's going on. They were written for broad audiences. They were written often for converts. And so they make things plain. Um, I also just will say, if, if you're going to start with the Gospels, Acts is actually just the second half of Luke. And so I would always include Acts with that because it gets into that messy, how do we actually live together stuff in a way that's really interesting. Um, yeah, but it totally depends on the person. Like I would prescribe a different book to different people. <laughs> telling doctors, who they are, what they love, God has made them. Yeah. <laughs> Some people should start with the songs. Yeah, yeah. Some people definitely. should start with uh, Kohelet. So you know, <laughs> like it just depends. How about you, Gloria? What's your your advice? Yeah, I think um, it. Both of you talking about this brought me back to like when I read my first full book of the Bible, which was a gospel. It was Luke. Um, one of my pastors was like, "You should do this as a Lenten thing. Like instead of giving something up, read the Gospel of Luke, which happens to be about forty chapters long. So it worked out that I could read a chapter a day." Um, and I, I really agree too. I think the gospels are a really great place to start. But again, I would prescribe a different gospel for different people. <laughs> because they each kind of have their own flavor. Yeah. Um, I would maybe I would maybe push people more towards like Luke, Matthew, and Mark, just because John is so, uh, I'm trying to think of the word I, wording I want to use for it, right? Like it's really heady and kind of philosophical <laughs> and there are a lot of references. There's all, there's lots of references as we just talked about to scripture. But in John in particular, it's really hard sometimes. So, and uh, so I would feel like that might be the last one you go to just to to get that feel. Um, let me, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Just to let people know, if if you're reading any part of the Bible, right? You know, open a page, see what it brings you. There are ways to make it more understandable if you're having any difficulty with it. I mean, this is the great thing about living now. Most most Christians throughout human history like couldn't read, much less have YouTube videos about each book of the Bible to help them out, right? So like we have all these tools before us. Some great study Bibles. I love the Wesley study Bible for kind of simple, direct study Bible. If you're more interested in the academic um, perspective, the New Oxford Annotated Bible is the most comprehensive probably. Um, but, but having a study Bible, which will give you an introduction to when each book was written, um, to that'll have footnotes on references like, oh, Paul's talking here about this guy he doesn't like, right? Like, oh, you thought it was weird? Here's what's happening. Um, that'll have maps 
where you can imagine where people were going, those are all super helpful tools. Use them. They make it this rich, incredible experience. Um, and I will say the Wikipedia articles on the Bible are not bad. Like they are just not bad. They're pretty good. Um, I will say be careful about Googling the Bible because the organizations that have the highest SEO on the Bible search engine optimization um, are, in my opinion, some of the cruelest and most fundamentalist. So if you just Google a question about the Bible, you will often find the first five or 10 answers to be frankly dehumanizing or just really um, limited. And not, not always, but just as a, you don't have to take the first answer you get, I guess is what I'd say. <laughs> Look at a lot of tools, get yourself a good study Bible, talk to a lot of people about what's going on. So we have a question here from Sarah Evans. I hesitate to know what to teach my toddler about the Bible. I've got a three-year-old and six-year-old, Sarah. <laughs> Boy, do we understand. I think a lot of kids' Bible stories aren't kid-friendly. I mean, Noah's Ark, Baby Moses. It is so weird what we have decided to start with with the children. <laughs> oh, remember that time that God destroyed the earth? <laughs> animals. Um, how can I teach my toddler about the Bible in a kid-friendly way? This is a great question. Um, uh, so we have a couple specific recommendations that I want to offer. Um, some people love the Deep Blue Kids Bible, Common English. Um, I really love the Children's Storyteller Bible that was put together by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Great illustrations, great simple versions of those texts, um, and starting with the ones that I think are the most relevant for kids, like talking about how do we live our lives? Who is God? Who are these brothers who fight? Like. It, the way it starts is nice. Um, Tommy DePaolo has a couple of really beautifully illustrated Bible books. Um, and then there are two curriculum that we use in our Sunday school at church that you can just like buy isolated versions of that are pretty good. And one is Spark House and one is Godly Play. And those are geared at different ages of kids and they have good theology. They're historically rooted, um, but they also are age appropriate and that they won't just kind of start with trauma and leave it in a box or they won't simplify in a way that I find to be inappropriately truthful, right? Where they kind of put a fancy ending on a story that doesn't really end that way, which isn't what I want for my kids. I don't want to feel like I'm lying to them. Um, and, and I also say parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable um, kids are real people. They have real spiritual lives. They're going through struggles all the time. Um, and so I actually find it helpful to talk to my kids about the parts of the Bible where somebody is hurting or does something wrong or something terrible happens to them because bad things do happen to people and it can equip us to recognize the fullness of human life. Um, so that's a couple different takes on that. Le uh, Leisha, Gloria, are these things that you've thought about? I think I will defer to both of you. <laughs> um, I have a, a, one, a now one-year-old, and I taught children's church for quite a while. And I agree with Hannah on the curriculum for Spark House and Godly Play. Um, I have seen them both. I've used them both. Really like them. I particularly am fond of Godly Play because of the way the stories are told. Like Hannah said, they they tell them in a truthful way, but then they step up too. So like the story I think of as a great way to start is like Abraham and Sarah talks about Abraham going from place to place, but doesn't talk about sacrifice, trying to sacrifice Isaac at a certain point, right? 
there is a like an add-on story for older kids that does tell that story. So you're looking at the age appropriateness of stuff because the story of Abraham and Sarah is that they moved around and they found God in different places. That is the essence of that story and that's what's important about it. And it doesn't cover up things, right? Like it talks about, and then Sarah died and you kind of bury Sarah in the sand because it's a sand story. And kids experience things like death in their lives. And I have seen children really work through grief um, through playing with that story, right? Like they've had a grandparent pass away that they knew and they loved and, and you can't, it's hard to kind of reconcile those big emotions even as adults. And so to be able to act it out because that's how children really um, process things. They don't use their words. And I'm like going into therapy mode too. Bring it on. Therapy's great. We love therapy. <laughs> so kids use play to, to process through things. And that's what I love about godly play is it's this way to act out a story and then the kids can play with it and they can act out the story. They can act out other things. Um, and so I think that's, what's really beautiful about it. And I'm going to look into those children's Bibles that you mentioned too, Hannah, because we, we need some in our household. They're all great. And I want to, I saw in the comments that recommendation of the deep blue was Pastor D'Angelo. So welcome Pastor D'Angelo. Yay. And if you want to hear more from Pastor D'Angelo, they are going to be um, a part of our prayer conversation next Thursday. So show back up here. All right. We've got another great question. Why and where does the Bible say it is infallible? How do we reconcile with that in those times where, as Gloria said, I don't feel there is truth? So this is where I have to admit to you that I do not have every word of the Bible memorized. Bad pastor, right? But so, but the, in my view, it's not the Bible that makes this claim. It's some people from about 200 years ago who make this claim. This is like this idea of biblical infallibility um, is not shared across time and space in Christian spaces. And it's not a particular priority of the Bible itself. Um, there are a couple places where one could make the argument that is what is happening, right? So um, a couple books of the Bible that say, do not add to or take away from these words, right? These are the words of God. Don't mess with them. That That definitely suggests a certain kind of integrity and perfection of those words. But then is that supposed to apply to the rest of the biblical witness? Psalm 1 says, drink deep of the rivers of the scripture, right? So scripture is really important and you have to take it seriously and have to take it honestly. But this idea of infallibility and inerrancy and explaining what it is, to me is not a part of the biblical witness. It's not a part of the biblical text. What is, is, um, this is one of the biggest tools God has given us to know God. Take it really freaking seriously, right? Like that, that's kind of the, the Bible is to me different from any other book in the world. It's different from any other God inspired and God breathed book in the world because there are a lot of them. And um, I don't think that requires infallibility or inerrancy. You, like to me, that belongs to God. And what we have is a lot of people trying to make an idol out of other things. Um, but there's definite disagreement about that, right? So some people would say that the argument for the Bible's infallibility comes from the process by which it was put together or comes from the authorities, like the particular priests and religious leaders who put it together. Just not me. <laughs> 
other thoughts on this, Gloria and Lisa? Totally. I was glad that a question like this came up because I wanted to sort of like, I feel like we were at the edge of talking about just what is truth? <laughs> and I, I, we were chatting a little bit before this and I said that, you know, this is, this is, I think, there's a lot of philosophy about what is truth as well that has been kind of helpful. Um, um, I guess I want to just bring up a couple of just technical points to like undermine this question, undermine this like assertion also, right? There's a lot of parts of the Bible where stories get told more than once in different ways. So what does that mean? What is the truth of that story then, right? We already mentioned like the four gospels are four, like there are details that are just completely different between them. So then what is the one true story? You can't, you know, think it's irresponsible to just brush it away and say, you know, oh, this writer made a small mistake. Well, then how do we know where the other mistakes are and what is not a mistake, right? So there's clearly something more robust about the process of determining what is true and what is like the real story, what is a true story. And I think we, we see that a lot even, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives right now, right? <laughs> um, each of our individual experiences of the world is very, is unique, right? It's subjective. Um, and so what, you know, I might say something to my partner and she will respond in a certain way thinking that I meant one thing, but I meant something totally different. And that's just what both of those, you know, meanings were true to us in some way. I intended something, she heard something else. And that happens, you know, with all sorts of disagreements, all sorts of like events and, and, and everything. Um, so I, 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 this is not to say that there is no truth, right? But just to say that the process of determining it is really hard. And that is, I think, just the crux of what like biblical scholarship and just keep reading, like reading the Bible over and over and over again to see like, what does it say to you the next time you, you read it, right? Um, well, and the hardness, I think, there's a certain kind of faithful person who wants the hardness of discernment to be like a condemnation, right? It should be easy to figure out what to do or what's true. To me, a faith that is not humble is dangerous. The only one who knows all things at all times is God. And part of why we are called to discern is to help us have a continuing faithful position that is, um, that recognizes that, <laughs> that recognizes that we are human and that we are in community, that we are nothing without each other, that our discernment happens in community. Um, and I think it's just arrogant, frankly, to believe that we should be able to know all things at all times about everything from one text that God gave us. That's, that leaves behind the humility that I think is essential to truly following God and knowing God and being prepared to be asked anything of God and to be prepared to change because of who God is and for God and to follow Jesus. So I um, it actually makes, it's like a red flag for me. It makes me nervous when someone is like, we should know everything. We should be able to answer all questions. Why? Yeah. Anything else on this kind of infallibility question, Gloria? I think I, you both really kind of hit the nail on the head for me. And I think too, Leisha, just like bringing up that, that example of like, things are told twice in the Bible. And what does that mean? I mean, even just like a chapter apart, like, yeah. <laughs> like in the book or within the same paragraph, like, right. <laughs> right. What does that mean? Yeah. Why do you do it? And it, and for me, it's kind of like, well, it, it must be really important. 
Like this yes. must be really important. And so I should pay attention to it. And that's how, how I get there. But are there things in the Bible that like, I'm like, I just don't know. I can't get on board with it. I can't answer the question. It's too weird or too gray for me. Mm. That's today, right? Like that's right now. Who knows where I'll be tomorrow in a week, next month, next year, because also like our experiences, the way that we live in this world, change and shape our own perspectives. So like, I, I first read the Bible all the way through before I went to seminary and then I went to seminary and now I did it again this year during a pandemic. Like the way I read it this year was completely different than the ways that I have read it previously. And so um, if I change that much, right? Like what does that, what does that mean? And how do I, how do I say, well, this is how I can't say it's a prescription, right? Like it's written this way for me to take it only one way forever. Well, and that's a part of certain ancient Mediterranean or ancient Mediterranean, ancient Mesopotamian literary cultures was, this is like a mind blowing thing I learned in, in a Hebrew Bible class, telling a story twice made it truer. So the little details were not actually the important part. The important part was we tell the most important stories twice and that it was intentional. It wasn't a mistake, which like is beautiful, yeah. right? We have a couple anonymous questions that I wanna make sure we get sure. to. Do you think God created people other than Adam and Eve or were people really procreating with their siblings? <laughs> so we're back at the creation. <laughs> what I mean, what I'll say is like, Adam and Eve go somewhere and meet people <laughs> after they leave the Garden of Eden. So I, I don't think they were the first two people and I don't think the Bible does either, frankly. I, I think that God is telling a different kind of story about what choice is and what evil is through that tale. Yeah. Can I say something like provocative? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I have studied a lot of science and my partner is a scientist. Like. Honestly, yeah, I think we probably evolved from like primates and like the theory yeah. of evolution is pretty spot on about the origin of the universe and, you know, Big Bang, all that. Like there's, you know, this is also part of like the difficulty of truth is like there are different kinds of truth. Like what is truth scientifically, historically, like this fact happened versus what is true emotionally or morally or ethically, they're different things. And I think you know, once you break, once we, like we've already said, once you break down, like this, these words are literal, factual, nothing else, then you realize that they, this, this story is true because it is like you said, Hannah, like telling us about what is choice and evil. And, you know, how did maybe the first humans relate to the first ideas of God and things like that. Right. Um, but there's a lot of also like facts and evidence pointing to like, yeah, evolution probably happened. And, you know, um, and is an extraordinary teaching about God. Yes, exactly. And God is <laughs> like in, that, yeah. that things happen slowly over time, that the earth is full of creation and extraordinary things that like, I learned so much about who God is from reading about the science of evolution and human creation and the things that we came from and the things that we are like at, at, these false choices people have set up for us. Yeah. Um, that cut us off from so much of what is extraordinary about the creator of the universe. I wanna bring in sort of related to that, 
um, from Allie. When you say there are other God-breathed, God-inspired books in the world, what are you referring to? From someone taught it's the Bible and the Bible only. Um, so I will say like, God created everyone. So literally everything. I mean, like everything that's ever been written down, everything that has ever existed, every song, every movie, every book has something to teach us about who God is. The worst one, the best one, the weirdest one. Like, because God created us, there's something to be learned about God in every aspect of human creation. And then I also think there's this additional level of of things through which the Holy Spirit appears to me to move in a particular and profound and extraordinary way. Um, so one question I'll often ask people to deal with this canonization thing in our mind is, um, if canonization was still open, if we were still adding stuff, what's something you think would get added to the Bible? Um, and for me personally, the answer is the letter from a Birmingham jail mm. by Martin Luther King, right? That I think, he wrote it from jail, which is where half the New Testament came <laughs> from. He's a religious leader talking to other Christians about what it means to be a Christian. And when I read that letter, I feel the Holy Spirit driving me to be transformed in Christ every single time. And a bunch of people read it. It's been validated by a community of believers who feel the need to read it over and over again to get in touch with God. To me, if we opened up the canon, it'd be going in, you know, like we're not doing that, but that that's one answer to this question. Any other thoughts on this, on God breathed and God inspired, Lisa and Gloria? Yeah, totally. Um, I'm in a class on John Calvin this quarter. Uh, and it's funny, I got a little incense then reading this because there's a part where he like, Calvin's idea of God is something like God is truth. So like anything that is true, whether it is like, the philosophers, the Greek philosophers that he was really well studied in, or art or the science of the time, wherever there is truth, that truth is coming from the source, the fountain, which is God. And so, you know, we should pay attention to that truth elsewhere. There's li like, we should literally a sentence in the in his like, kind of magnum opus, wherever it is found, we shall, we should pay attention to it. And it would be like a disservice and a failure. And we would be losing out on God not to do that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I do think, I personally think that I think God continues working in the discoveries of scientists right now who are, you know, helping us learn what COVID does and making vaccines, the truth that they figure out about how the body works and medicine, all of those things is is truth and is god inspired god breathed absolutely i completely agree and i think there are moments right where you can feel god moving you can feel the spirit moving you whether it's listening to a song or a podcast i mean like i think of like fred rogers right like a really faithful man of god another pastor right who who did media through television and um, aimed at children, but really aimed at all of us, right? And I think that is truth from God. And if we can do like a mixed media Bible, like yeah, right. what, what would that look like? Oh, cool that I know. Gloria, yeah. that's so cool. Like, <laughs> that just popped into my head. That's the spirit moving, right? Like, I think that would be awesome. And that's, and I, I, that's what I think of too, right? Yeah. Like we are all made by God and living in this world to be good in God's eyes. So how, what, whatever we do is part of that. Yeah. 
I have appreciated this conversation so much. We're coming up on time. So I want to tell people if there are any final questions, put them in there. We'll try and answer them, but we'll also try and answer them. A couple upcoming things. Sunday at 1 p.m., we're going to be doing another one of these on what is a Christian? Like what is a faithful person? Next Thursday at 7 p.m., we'll be doing another one on what is prayer? Like how do you pray? What even is it? What's happening there? What's wrong with it? Um, and also Gloria is about to be leading a fantastic small group on the parables of the Bible. So yes, we are going to be reading this great book by um, a New Testament scholar who um, is actually Jewish, which is really great. Her name is Amy Jill Levine. And the book is called Short Stories by Jesus, The Enigmatic Parables of a Controversial Rabbi. So it's a <laughs> six week study. It's a short book. Um, and we're going to be starting on May 12th. So if you're interested in that, you can email Hannah and she'll get you connected with me and um, my co-leader, who is my mother. <laughs> and one last uh, anonymous question while we have it. Does the Bible really speak against premarital sex or just against promiscuity? And does it define promiscuity? Uh, so I will say, if you want the long answer to this one, <laughs> We're starting a good Christian, another good Christian sex small group next week, and we will get all up into all of it. So please email me and you can join the good Christian sex small group if this is worrying you, if this is on your mind. Um, and I will say sort of thematically with the rest of the evening, different parts of the Bible say really different things about sex and what good sexual behavior looks like and what harmful sexual behavior looks like and what a marriage should be. Um, there is certainly no definition of promiscuity or of sexual harm, but there's a lot of conversation about what sexual harm is. Is it sexual harm to use your power to force someone to have sex with you? Is it sexual harm to go to the forced sex workers in temples dedicated to other gods? Is it sexual harm to have sex outside marriage? Is it sexual harm to get married at all, right? There are people in the Bible who think we should all be celibate. There are people in the Bible who think we should all have multiple spouses to keep our family lines going so that no lineage is broken. And so I would, um, what is sexual harm and what is sexual joy for you is going to be something that you're gonna have to figure out with the Holy Spirit and with the whole of the Bible as a teaching witness. And that I think will be a really, beautiful and faithful project for you. Um, and I want to say, Pastor D'Angelo said, right, we ourselves are holy, living, God-inspired scriptures. That is right. That's why we have a testimony every Sunday, because we are a new thing that God is doing. Um, and I pray that for you, as you figure out the role of sex in your faith life, as you discern, as God has given you the power to discern, you take into account all of the parts of the Bible that have something to say about it, and then what the Holy Spirit is saying to you now in this moment. So we're coming, we're reaching 8 p.m. Anything you guys have to say on that last question we had? Any final buttons or anything else about the Bible? A book you want to recommend to people? A video? Um, anything else on your mind? I feel like there's just so much more we could talk about. No. <laughs> I will plug one quick book. Um, there's a book by John Barton called The Nature of Biblical Criticism. It's a little bit academic, but a pretty short read. And I think it gives a lot of good contours to a lot of the questions and difficulties of reading the Bible. What does it mean? What are we looking for? What is truth? Um, I don't agree 100% with his final answer on it, but I think it gives a very good overview of just like, what are, what are the stakes here? And he, I think it's true that like, 
there are stakes, and this means a lot to us, each of us, and each of everyone who comes to the Bible, I think, is affected by it and, you know, wants to make some sense of it. So I would definitely encourage people to check that out um, as a good starting point. Um, and I, a, a book that I would recommend for folks uh, that's really great to kind of help you understand the Bible is by Adam Hamilton called Making Sense of the Bible. He really kind of goes over like the different ways people can, re can read the Bible, um, including that like, is it the truth? And is it a prescription for our lives? And gives you a really great background. It's short and it's really readable. Um, highly recommend it. And yeah, I would just say that was that's a really good one for people just starting out. Yeah, and I'll say um, if you're reading a specific book of the Bible and you want to understand it better, I think one of the best commentaries that is like truthful, they always are on the latest scholarship, but they're also pretty like relevant to current life and easy to read is the Belief commentary series. Um, and they've done about half the Bible so far, so they're working on it. But then the other, the number one book about the Bible that I recommend to everyone is Reverend Will Gaffney's Womanist Midrash. Um, it's only about the Hebrew Bible. She's writing, a, I think, a second component of it that's coming out this year. But she's truly just one of the wisest and most incredible womanist scholars, which means to write from the, the both lived and scholarly experience of a Black woman. Um, and writes this midrash, which is a way of saying like conversation about what the Bible is and what these stories mean. Her translations, her interpretations, they're always like mind blowing for me and um, make everything make more sense and are just really great. So womanist midrash, if you don't have it, like get that or I'll lend you my copy or you can get it from a library. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for being with us tonight. If you liked this, if this was meaningful for you, let us know because it's an experiment. We can certainly do more of them. We can have a part two. Um, join us again on Sunday or Thursday or email me at Hannah K, H-A-N-N-A-H-K at urbanvillagechurch.org if you'd like to get any of the things we've met mentioned or join any of the small groups we've mentioned. I want to thank again, Lisa and Gloria for offering their time and their wisdom tonight and thank our behind the scenes director who you have not seen, but without, without whom this would not have happened, Caleb. Um, it takes every one of us to build a community and God bless you and thank you. Bye everyone. Bye.